And welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza. I'm your host, Lily. This is a podcast about what it's like to be a doctor. Each episode, we talk to someone from a different specialty or area of health. And today we're conversing about people with microscopes, that is, pathologists. Pathology is the study of what can go wrong with the body. For example, if you run an important podcast, but your voice is a bit scratchy, so you have to go ahead anyway. Well, the show must go on despite pathology, and this show must go on featuring a doctor from pathology. So let's welcome Dr. Nikki on the show. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us your time and what will undoubtedly be some wisdom. So to start off with, can you tell us what you do? Okay, so I'm an anatomical pathologist, um, and uh, as, as you said, most of what we do is looking down microscopes. Basically, anatomical pathology is the branch of pathology that looks at tissue specimens, whether they be biopsies, surgical specimens, and also fluid and cytology, so fine needle aspirates and fluid cytology as well. So it's pretty much all the pathology that's not just blood tests, so it's not what goes into machines in biochemistry departments and hematology. They are all part of pathology also, but they're different branches of pathology, and what I do really is just anatomical pathology, but acknowledging that pathology has multiple branches, hematology, biochemistry, microbiology, genetics, immunopathology, and anatomical pathology. What I would say is that in terms of the workforce, anatomical pathology does take up the vast majority of people because it's the most manual, hands-on component of pathology, therefore it just needs more of us. So if you talk to pathologists, a significant number of us are anatomical pathologists. In um, some of the other disciplines like hematology and microbiology in particular, a lot of those pathologists will be joint trained with the physician's training program. So infectious diseases specialists will often have um, microbiology and do a joint fellowship with the two colleges and the same with the hematologists. Okay, so let's get this straight. There's really two definitions of pathology. One is the idea of it's a study of what can go wrong and the other one is that it's a specialty that you can do if you go under the College of Pathologists. Absolutely. So it is a specialty that you can do as a medical specialty which a lot of the general public in particular are unaware when you say it's a, when you say you're a pathologist. Number one, they don't know that you're a doctor, and you are. And number two, the first thing they say is, oh, well, I had my blood test done. Well, sure, that's part of pathology, but that's not what the majority of pathologists right. are involved in. Um, the majority of us are involved in anatomical pathology or histopathology, which is really all about the study of tissues and fluids and fine needle aspirates and so forth. Okay, so what got you into this exciting field? Well, I think most of us have had some exposure at, at university, at medical school. We all sort of spent our time with, you know, standardised boxes and, and looked at slides of acute appendicitis and pneumonia and TB and all those standard things, and we all had to learn at least a little bit about pathology. I hope that that's still ongoing. I know it's quite <laughs> variable among the different medical schools. So I, I, always had, I was always interested in it. I really liked that aspect. I was always fascinated by how things go wrong in the human body, you know, what what's what happens when things go wrong and what you know, what does different cancers look like and why do they behave differently and all that sort of thing. So I always had I think I had an interest way back from then. Um, and really that that just developed later. Um, as an intern and a resident, at the end of my residency I took the least the path of least resistance like many people and did a year of physicians training. 
but I realised partway through that year that that really wasn't for me, <laughs> and so I, I had to sort of have an, another think about, you know, what I was really interested in, and I kept going back to pathology because it was just something that I was fascinated by. Okay, and do you think pathology suits any particular personalities, or are there personalities who should stay away from it? I don't know about personalities. I mean, there's lots of different personalities in pathology. I don't think it's a personality thing. There's certainly... Um, so some people that would be more suited to it than others in terms of the way their minds think. Mm-hmm. It does require an ability to think laterally, to think in three dimensions. Pattern recognition is a really important part of it, and some people's minds work in that way and others struggle with that. So it is different in that respect, but I don't think it's personality-driven. I think anybody can do it if they're, if they're interested and they've got the, the mind, the sort of mind that can that can sort of think along those lines and to some extent I guess you can train yourself into that too but there are certainly some people who start and realise that their mind just doesn't they just look down a microscope and they just don't have that ability to see the patterns in the first instance but personality wise I think anybody could do it Um, you know I don't think that matters Sure. How about, how about we replace the word personality with something more like values? Let's say the stereotype of emergency and critical care doctors is that they like that fast-paced environment, they want to make quick decisions, that sort of thing. Okay, so I guess it is it is different. So the majority of pathology is not that sort of fast-paced, quick decisions. There is the exception, though, when you're doing a frozen section, which is when a sample will come down from usually operating theatres, but, you know, inter- interventional radiology perhaps, where they send it down fresh and they want a preliminary answer immediately, whether that's a diagnosis or a looking at a surgical margin for the, for the, you know, the surgeons to know have they got the tumour out where they're at. And that's something that really has to be done on the spot. You know, we, we freeze the tissue, we cut the slides, we look at it, we phone it back through to them in anywhere from 10 to 15, 20 minutes. So that really is mm-hmm. the right. one time where we're put on the spot. Yep. Um, otherwise, most of it's a little bit not so fast-paced in terms of there isn't that, oh, my God, something's gone wrong and then there's suddenly this rush of activity for half an hour and then things settle down. Your workday is a little bit more streamed and standardised and can be extremely busy, and many of us are very busy these days. Um, but you can also be a little bit more flexible in terms of choosing how you run your workday and, and how, how you do it. Um, meetings and, and uh, multidisciplinary team meetings, MBTs, are a big part of pathology practice these days, and, and so we get a lot of... Um, work that's generated by that but that's where we get the contact with the various clinical teams as well so they're important but they're I think and also a really good part of the, of the job. Okay so it's definitely not a registrar running frantically down the corridor no. with a kidney and being no. like I have to so get this if, to the if you're into the, If you really want the adrenaline rush perhaps pathology isn't for you. <laughs> But apart from that, I think it's fine. <laughs> but I, I guess people get their adrenaline rushes from different ways. So some people might get it from looking at interesting cells down the microscope. But that's not all that pathologists Absolutely. do. Absolutely. So, you know, I guess it's not so much necessarily an adrenaline rush, but for me, <laughs> yeah. the satisfaction is really grappling with something difficult, unusual, rare, and coming up with an answer. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's still all about the patients. And I think it's wrong to say that pathologists don't because we don't deal directly with patients that we don't care, mm. that's not the case at all. The patients are still first and foremost in our mind, and what we're doing needs to be correct and, and you know for them. Um, but in terms of job satisfaction, that's a large part of it. You know, when you you see something that initially it's like, oh, gee, this is a bit unusual and this is different or challenging, and, and you work through it and you come up with an answer. And, um, and there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. That's that's a very satisfying part of the work, I think. 
Um, I personally also like the interaction with the clinicians. So I, you know, I always have my door open and I work in a hospital environment. So the door is open and the clinicians will walk in on a regular basis. Um, a lot of pathologists these work work in private practice where they're not co-located with their clinicians. So it's, it's a little different in that respect, but they might still go and do meetings and still have that contact that way. Okay, so the impression I get of pathology is that it's quite an intellectual specialty where you do retain a lot of your medicine and you're frequently oh, using what you know of it. Now, we have clinicians, for example, cardiologists who work on the ward who will de deal directly with patients, whereas what pathologists do will um, be giving information to clinicians to help their diagnosis and be um, dealing th uh, with patients through clinicians, I suppose. Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. So we don't do a lot of direct patient contact, and we're certainly not directly dealing with the patients from the point of view of giving them the diagnoses directly. We do it via the reports and we're not involved in treatment or management decisions, although we're certainly really important in guiding those mm. management decisions from the clinicians. Yeah. I mean, the times in which you may actually directly deal with patients is uh, some pathologists run particularly fine needle aspiration clinics and they'll have patients coming in and they'll do those procedures and just occasionally you get patients who will actually ring and, and, and even come in and say I really want to discuss my case or mm. talk to you or have a look. It's not common but it certainly does happen and we're, well I personally am, am more than happy to have that discussion with patients who want it. The reality is most, not many do <laughs> but that's fine. Okay, so it sounds like a really interesting, really exciting specialty. And also when you think about the human body, there are so many organs, there are so many things that can go wrong. Absolutely, and we need to know it all. So it's very broad, you know. Um, some In some bigger departments, pathologists have started to subspecialise and you'll get, you know, pathologists who spend much of their time doing, for instance, GI, gastro bi gastrointestinal biopsies and, and GI surgical stuff and others will do a lot of breasts. But, but by and large, I think most of us will do a bit of in a broader range just to keep our skills up as well yeah. um, it's it is a changing specialty in that over the last five ten years um, the input of molecular pathology has become much more important and much bigger in terms of assisting that diagnostic pr process so that's something that's ever evolving and ever changing so it's really interesting you know I think about how we deal with certain specimens and diagnoses now compared to even just 10 years ago and in many ways it's quite different and, and molecular um, pathology, molecular genetics is a large part of that. So it's it's interesting because well, I think we really are at the forefront um, of a lot of diagnostic um, work but I think all of medicine is rapidly changing in, in many respects so that's, that's good, that, that's fine. But it, it does keep the interesting up and you certainly have to maintain your your, your um, continuing education because otherwise you will fall behind very quickly. Yeah. Now speaking of changes, we were just chatting before about a change that's happening to the training program of pathologists. Sure, so traditionally um, pathology, there's even in anatomical pathology, there's a number of sub-areas. Um, forensic pathology does fall under it as well and, and we'll sort of put that aside because those who are interested in forensic pathology clearly know that autopsy is a large part of that practice they start off with the same yep. the initial part is the same and then they move on but in terms of the rest of anatomical pathology traditionally we've been the people who have done the hospital autopsy work as well um, and that has the numbers of hospital autopsies have substantially decreased over the last 10 to 15 20 years actually this is worldwide experience this is not not unique to australia um, to the point where in many hospitals autopsies are no longer being performed on particularly on adults in the paediatric perinatal set setting, there's still quite a bit being done, particularly in the perinatal autopsy um, 
uh, field, but but in terms of routine non-coronial autopsies in hospitals, they are becoming fewer and far between, and it's starting to um, be limited to certain institutions only. And in fact, the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia that that follows you know that covers the training program has acknowledged this and. The um, autopsy assessment that was part of um, the training requirements is no longer no longer the case. I think from next year, so it basically all even trainees who are currently in the yeah. system, if they've those that are finishing any time from next year onwards, are no longer required to do an autopsy assessment. They can if they want, and they do a number of different um, observed things that have to get signed off over the years. And, and autopsy is going to an optional rather than a requirement. Okay. Um, and that acknowledges the fact that in reality, 95 or 98% of anatomical pathologists these days really don't do an autopsy as part of their routine work anymore. Um, whether that's good or bad is another is another issue, but that's just an acknowledging the fact. And, and just for our listeners, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that people are no longer dying and we're immortal. It oh, just no. means that there are less autopsies no. being done. No, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of it is just better diagnosis before okay. death. You yeah. know, people are, particularly those who have been in hospital for a long time, they're much more likely to have had various imaging and diagnostic procedures. So the, the uncertainty is not as as much of a problem. Um, I think autopsies, you know, there, there's certainly issues of public relations and so that's an issue in terms of getting patients or families to consent and um, for a lot of different reasons it's it's dying a slow death literally um, <laughs> apart from the coronial side and that's a separate issue. Okay so what different types of pathology are there? You mentioned anatomical forensic. So anatomical is the one that has the vast majority in terms of numbers of pathologists because it's the most manual but the others and, and forensic is branch of anatomical pathology okay. so forensic pathology training you start off with anatomical pathology you do the same part one exam and then you branch off into forensic practice and you do a separate stream to part two okay and just so with anatomical are, pathology that's um, studying the tissues and the that's tissues that's so it's biopsies surgical specimens as i said fluids yep. cytology yep. fine needles um what it's not so the other branches are hematology mm-hmm. so that's blood films bone marrows um, particularly bone marrow aspirates, trephines are variably done in haematology or anatomical pathology departments. Um, and a lot of haematology, haematologists with an, an FRCPA, so a fellowship of the College of Pathologists, uh, joint trainees have a physician's exam as well. Um, biochemistry, microbiology, um, genetics, so genetic pathology is one of the newer branches of pathology, uh, and they may or may not be clinical geneticists as well. Um, and immunopathology is the other one. Again, a lot of those will be um, joint immunologists with, with um, an immunopathology fellowship as well. So those joint fellowship programs in haematology, microbiology, immunopathology, um, they're programs that are run by the Physicians College and the College of Pathologists together. I mean, they have to, those trainees need to do exams on both fronts, but it's not a do one first, finish it, and then do the next right. one. They are interleaved in a way to make it possible to do the whole thing. It just takes a bit longer than just a straight, okay. um, you know, hematology, than just a straight physician's fellowship. Okay, and there are lots of places you can work after. You could work in a hospital that could be adult or paediatric. You could work at the coroner if you're doing forensic. Yeah. You could work in a university. You could work in a private lab. So lots yeah, of so options. The, absolutely. So the from the point of view of anatomical pathology, so if you're forensic trained, then obviously you have to work. You you want to work in a forensic unit. But in terms of the majority of anatomical pathologists, there's hospital practice, whether that be in large urban. 
teaching hospitals or smaller, particularly regional hospitals that quite a few of them will still have, still have their own AP departments on site. Not every hospital will because the practice of pathology, majority of specimens get put in form and they're quite transportable. So the practice does allow centralisation and a lot of that has happened, but there are still um, sites around the state that, that have their own AP units. Um, and then there's the other big place, the private is um, yeah. private pathology world, and that ranges from the very large private practices through to smaller boutique private practices of just a few pathologists and even a few that just run as solo pathologists. But so you know, there, there's everything in between, mm. and again, it's it's different people like different environments. Some people like the smaller setting, some people like the bigger teaching hospital or the bigger private setting where there's lots of people and and lots of variety. It's it's very much. Um, you know, different. They're, they're different, but that that's good because that yeah. gives everybody options to work in different environments yeah. that suit them. So, okay. um, the other thing I would say is that it's especially that does lend itself to working um, part time as well as full time. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of part time pathologists around in, in every setting, um, and that's that's one of the things that I think is is good. It gives flexibility to people. So yeah. Okay, and what are the hours like? Are you ever called up in the middle of the night to yeah, like, so take care it, of this Yeah, so it does slide? depend on where you work. So a lot of places, and because I work in a public hospital, I have we are on call 24 hours, 24-7. Um, so I have to share that on call with my colleagues. Okay. And um, sure, there's a chance it will be called in the middle of the night, but actually it's pretty rare. Okay. Certainly I think we get called in the middle of the night a lot less frequently than surgeons or radiologists yeah. or other people. So... Their middle-of-the-night call is exceptional, and I really would say it's exceptional. Um, but certainly there are times on weekends when you have to come in. But um, it's not usually excessive, and the bigger departments might call pathologists in more often, but then in a bigger department you're doing fewer on-call sessions because yeah. there's more of you to, yeah. to, to cover it. So um, it's quite variable, I think from place to place. I, I think the private labs are less likely to have on call, but they're also probably more likely to have a weekend, um, you know, um, more likely to require people to go in the weekend mm. because they don't want to sort of, they want to keep the work turning out. Yeah. And so perhaps you're more likely to have to go in and do a session on the weekend, but you, you're less likely to be on call on a Sunday. So again, that's one of the things people look at when they decide where they want to work at the end of the day is what the hours are. And so there's a lot of flexibility um, to, to work that out but your average work you know the average pathologist works business hour you know working hours I wouldn't say we're out the door at four o'clock by any stretch um, and we, I think we, most of us do work quite long hours because we are busy and certainly in the public sector I think generally we're understaffed um, but uh, you know it is very variable from institution to institution yeah Sure, and it sounds like even if you do get called in, it's not like obstetrics where you have to deliver a baby in the middle of the night. Oh, it's no, not sort of no, 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 absolutely no, no. The thing that will call you in in the middle of the night, um, and, and it's quite rare to have a frozen section at midnight, but it's not impossible. Mm. Um, but, you know, that certainly can happen on a weekend. And, again, in some, some centres, surgeons are now operating routinely on a Saturday, so they might want a pathologist there in case they want a frozen section. So that happens. You know, I'm not saying it's all Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Mm. But I don't think it's any specialty of medicine that's yeah. Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, um, unless you're literally working a sessional type thing where, you know, you, you're employed by, I don't know, the general practice down the road and you're going to work from 9 to 1 and that's it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 
I think that's that's quite unusual in, in specialty practice, really. Okay, and now speaking a little bit about your work, you've got quite a lot of um, expertise in paediatric pathology. So what's the difference between kids and adults when it comes to pathology? So the principles are the same, and we are AP trained. I'm not paediatrically trained, but the sort of things we see are quite different. Um, you know, there are clearly cancers in adults that we just will not see in a child so that's fine I don't have to worry about breast cancer and prostate cancer which is a good thing (laughs) but they get different sorts of tumours and different sorts of cancers I think the thing about paediatrics that I find a challenge but also extremely rewarding is that a lot of what you see in kids is much rarer much less common so it's it's difficult but you know that's part of the challenge and that is part of the reward and that's that's fine um but, you know, they get a lot of things that are similar and, and as to the principles of pathology that we put in place are essentially the same. But acknowledging that different diseases occur in different age groups, the clinicians have to know the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's all. But occasionally you get kids with adult things and occasionally you get adults with kids things. So we all need to know a bit of, you know, crossover about both. So... Yeah. So everything's possible in medicine, but it does sound like... Never say never. (laughs) That's right. Pretty much never say never, with rare exceptions. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Except it does sound like with kids you can get rarer diseases, maybe a a broader spectrum of some diseases. I I think the thing to remember is that, thankfully, kids don't... Yeah, kids' cancer is much rarer than adult Mm. cancer. So, for instance, in a big adult hospital, they might well get 10, 20 breast cancer, new breast cancers a week. In a children's hospital of a particular type of cancer, you know, say a renal tumour, there might be only 10 or 15 in the year of that particular type. So it's just an order of magnitude, everything's an order of magnitude less common. And then when you get to the rare things, literally there are tumours that we see once and I might wait another five or ten years or never see another one or maybe, you know, maybe one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just is, that, that's part of the challenge, Absolutely. And uh, I think I said to you before, children don't read textbooks. Actually, adults don't either. But, you know, the tumours definitely don't read textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's challenging. But that's, that's where the interest lies. Yeah. Thinking of textbooks, so um, even if you're interested in pathology, people should read tes- textbooks to know what's normal before they can understand what's well, wrong. Well, look, for, as a pathologist, the fundamental thing, number one, is normal histology. Yeah. And <laughs> as a pathology trainee, you've got to learn your normal or you can't pick abnormal. It's the yeah. same with it. It's the same with clinical examination. If you don't know what a normal heart sound looks like, right. sounds like, yeah. how on earth are you going to pick um, an murmur, abnormal yeah. heart sound, a murmur? The principle is the same. Yeah. Okay, now, speaking of normal, so a, a game that rowdy teenagers often play, and it's very normal for them, is a game called Truth or Dare. Uh, unfortunately, in my bag, I actually have with me a very disgusting sandwich, which is avocado, peanut butter, and mustard. Yeah. So if we play this game, Truth or Dare, one of us would probably end up eating it. So I'm going to modify this and hopefully play... Hopefully not me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, hopefully you. I don't want to eat it. But we'll, we'll modify it and play a game called Truth or Myth. So I'm going to um, give you a statement about pathology and and let's see if you can tell me if it's true, maybe partly true or just a stereotype that isn't founded at all. So the first thing is pathologists spend a large amount of time looking at slides under a microscope. Truth or myth? Look, I'd say that's true in most cases, yes. Okay, but it's not the only thing you guys do. No, no, but it isn't. It's look at the end of the day. That's that's the fundamental. What we need to do mm. is we're making diagnoses and they're being done under the microscope. But it's also important that we spend time looking at the specimens, particularly the larger surgical specimens. Even as a pathologist, 
while a lot of that initial dissection may be done by registrars and in some places even scientists, but with the complicated cases, it's really important to get into the lab and have a look at those yourself um, and assess them for yourself. So there's there's a lot of up and down in, in that. As I said, um, multidisciplinary team meetings and, and um, clinical team meetings are an important part of our work, um, becoming increasingly important these days. Um, so that that's, gets you out from under the microscope yep. as well. Um, there's a lot of quality sort of activities and quality work that we need to do. It's important um, that all labs are involved in ensuring that quality is maintained and it's part of our accreditation. Um, and so it's part of my work. I do perinatal autopsies too, so that gets me away from my desk. But in terms of the majority of pathologists in the average either teaching or, or private hospital or small or, or private sector, yes, the bulk of their work, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're being paid for is to generate diagnostic reports mm. and that's done by looking down the microscope. Okay, so that's true. There is um, true. a lot of time on a slide with microscopes, but it's not the only thing. And I do yes. want to add that pathologists are probably very good at chopping onions because you have to have a lot of precision to cut specimens properly to uh, prepare the slides. Well, we, we get pretty good with sharp knives. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sharp implements. <laughs> All right. So the next one um, is even if you don't tell a pathologist what organ they're looking at under a slide, they can recognize it just by looking at I the I would hope so, histology. yes. Good. All right. So that one's true. <laughs> yes. I mean, the you know, the exception is that sometimes all you get is the tumour. And mm. certainly these days more and more is expected from less and less. And what I mean with that is that the biopsies are getting smaller and smaller and they're expecting more and more information from them. So it's not uncommon for the biopsy to only be the tumour or the pathology and there'd be no normal on that thing. So in that respect, you do need information from the clinicians as to where they've got it from because it will vary your approach depending on what you're looking at, where it's from. But if there's some normal tissue there, I would hope, and I, I think I could, ex yep. I could confidently say that it, all pathologists should be able to pick it. Yes. Okay, and that's by recognising the different layers of cells and looking. Well, it's at by recognising the, the yeah. yeah whatever what a normal organ looks like. Yeah, yeah. and I mean as I said, histology is second nature to us, um, and, and it doesn't take long for that to happen. It's not it's not that difficult. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that one's true. Excellent. Now, the next one is, like radiologists who are considered vampires who live in the dark, pathologists don't have to talk to people much. Oh, uh, no, that's not true. That's not true. We talk to clinicians a lot. Um, yes, at the end of the day, the written report is what's generated. That's what's in the patient's file, and that's the record, and that's crucial. Um, but you talk to the clinicians a lot, particularly when something's unusual or unexpected and not only just at meetings, I mean, I'm on the phone to clinicians, whether they ring me or I ring them regularly. I said sometimes they turn up at my door and that's great. And that's, I think it's really important to have that, that um, communication open always. Um, but there's also, you work in a laboratory environment, so we also work closely with our lab staff. So there's, it's quite collegiate in that respect. You're not, um, you're not working behind a closed door by yourself all day. There is a department behind you, and they're also doing a really, really fundamentally important job. We can't do our work without without the lab staff and the scientists. Yeah. Okay, so it's very much team-based, whereas yeah. in comparison, uh, say with a GP, you take in a patient, it's just the GP and the patient. In that sense, it's, it's quite isolated. Yeah, so... As a pathologist, it's very you're very much working in a team, and and for me that's that's a really important part of of the attraction as well. I, I like that work environment. Um, so yeah, that's and, and then of course there's your colleagues, with rare exceptions, and there are a few place people who choose to work solo. Um, I would say they are very much the exception these days, but because even a small department will mostly have at least two or three, so that you can take leave if nothing else. Um, 
but you know you've always got so you've always got colleagues around and it's really helpful to be able to walk in and just say hey can you just have a look a quick look and just just agree you know, see if you agree with me or what do you think of this and it's also quite easy to you know to get expert opinions because slides can be relatively easily packaged up and, and sent out to colleagues locally in the same city but who you know have expertise in something or even in another city or internationally and you know slides oh. get, get shipped around the world on a regular <laughs> basis for, for expert opinions and particularly for us in paediatrics you know it's quite common for we, us to need that expert opinion from international uh, internationally because there's just not as many people in Australia and that really high level of specialty paediatric expertise is hard to get locally. But, you know, it, I'd say more often than not, if I'm going to get another opinion, it is a local, locally yeah. sought one in the first instance. Um, but, you know, occasionally it's, it's, it's broader than that. Yeah, so there's a lot of interaction. So that one is a myth. Pathologists do talk to other people. Absolutely. <laughs> and often people around them, but even people overseas if it needs well, to happen. Yeah, Excellent. email is wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, the next one is pathologists perform very objective work that could be done by a computer one day. Um, no, I don't think that's true. I mean, it is objective work. I like It should be objective work. And there's a lot of um, work that's been going on in the last 10 more years about standardising pathology practice and particularly with tumours. Um, but I think to say that it can be done by a computer one day, well, we're certainly not there at the moment, and I'd be surprised if we're there anytime soon. There's probably aspects of it that maybe computers could take over one day, but it's not easy. And uh, the, the sort of um, uh, programming that will be required will be really out there. But I, I just think there's too much variation. You know, at, at the end of the day, individuals are individuals and and every tumour is a little different. We try and standardise. You know, the whole point is of classification and diagnosis to standardise things. And the College of Pathologists has done an amazing job of putting together structured reporting protocols, as has, you know, this is an international movement to yeah. go down the path of structured reporting protocols for cancers particularly, so that everybody's getting the same information. And it's really important that the tumour that I might look at across my desk and then if somebody else you know in Perth is looking at a similar thing that at the end of the day this sort of information that's coming out of the two sites is similar is, is the same so that there's there's, there's the objectivity in that respect yeah. um, but I don't see us being um, taken over by machines anytime soon. Okay so how I see it is that uh, pathologists find the objective from the subjective. So you're yeah. given a slide which could vary immensely. A computer probably wouldn't be able to read that because for a computer to read that, someone has to tell the computer what to do. But absolutely, don't know and the problem predict. is you can you can program that computer to pick the common things, but yeah. it will struggle with the rare things. Right. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's not good enough. It's yeah. not good enough to say. I mean, this is what happens with you know. I've heard people say, "Oh, well, pathologists won't be required because radiology will take over." Well. Mm. Radiologists are great at saying, here's the tumour and this is the most common, this is what we think it's most likely to be. And 98% of the time it might be, but 2% of the time it's not. And the, mm. when it's not, it needs a different approach to treatment. You're never going to know that without some other objective test, whether that be anatomical pathology or genetics. And there's pros and cons both ways. But at the end of the day, standard diagnosis still remains anatomical pathology. Um, and that's not likely to change anytime soon, although, you know, sometimes with additional testing such as molecular and so forth on top of it but it's really a matter of pulling it all together um, 
So yeah, I, I don't see it as a specialty. I don't see it disappearing anytime soon. Okay, great. <laughs> so that one's a myth. Computers cannot overtake pathologists. No. At least not yet. No. Probably never. No. Although never say never, we say. Well, but yeah. maybe never for that. Okay, so we talked about radiology. So let's talk about that again. So sometimes, or even very often, doctors or people working in the hospital won't really read the radiology report and they might just go straight to interpreting, say, a chest x-ray by themselves. Now, with pathology, do people tend to, um, well, let's phrase this as a truth or myth, people actually do read the pathology report. True I, I would hope that they do read the <laughs> pathology report, yes. Um, a lot of time and effort goes into writing those reports. But I think the important thing to remember is, I mean, you gave the, the example of radiology in a chest mm. x-ray, and that's true. And the same with, for instance, biochemistry. If, mm. if a GP or, or a surgeon or a clinician orders, you know, um, EUCs on a patient or full blood count on a patient, they will look at that result themselves and they'll make that interpretation themselves most of the time, yeah. which is fine. Um, but when it comes to a histopathology report, they will, with, with few exceptions, and some clinicians do make the point of coming down and having a look down the microscope with us, um, the report is, is read and accepted as it stands. And they will not come and, and even if they come and look at it down the microscope with us, I've yet, they, they had, I've yet to see a clinician <laughs> tell me that yeah. that they what they see is different to what I see, or right. that they're going to tell me that I'm wrong. Yeah, um, I wouldn't expect that. I mean, <laughs> maybe there are clinicians around who think they can do that, but but the reality is, most clinicians know that they that this is not what they're trained to do. Yeah. Um, therefore, I don't think they would try. So what? what's generated in terms of that report absolutely has to stand on its own. And it is important that, you know, I think written written communication skills for a pathologist are, are really important, probably more so than for a GP or a lot of the clinical specialists, because what we write and how we write it and how we phrase it and the emphasis we put on things can mean the difference in terms of how they how it's interpreted. Mm. So yeah, absolutely really important. Because that one's true. People do read the pathology report. Yeah. Because it's, it's madness to be looking at this bunch of cells and trying to interpret it yourself. Yeah, they can't. They can't. Excellent. So the last one in this series is pathologists are happy, passionate people who enjoy their work. Is that true or not? I would say that the vast majority of people that I, that I work with and that I come across, yes, that's true. Good. I can't tell you that that's true for everybody. <laughs> and there are certainly some places where their workload is pretty terrible and, and they're really struggling. But I think by and large... We are happy people, and I think most of us enjoy our work and are passionate about it. That's certainly my experience. Excellent. So that's a true one. Now, to finish this off, let's just see if there's any advice that you can give uh, young budding pathologists or people who are interested in going into the specialty. So, for example, there's the uh, basic uh, pathology exam. Okay, what so, advice would you give? Um, there is, so there are a couple of things I would say. Is there, the College of Pathologists, there is a requirement to sit a basic pathological sciences exam, and that's been the case for a long time. Um, but nowadays, which you couldn't do in the past, you can sit that even as early as the latter year, year or two of your medical schooling um, or in internship or residency. So in other words, you don't have to be part of a training program to sit that anymore. It used to be the case, but not now. I don't think you have to have sat it before. You, know, you can certainly get a job in pathology without it, but many people these days will sit it prior to it. It's multiple choice, and it's, it's generic in that it covers basic principles of pathology practice it's really the first 10 chapters of robins plus a few extra articles that they've sort of recommended and it's not about knowing how to look down a slide it's about the principal theory of pathologies and and i think that's 
largely driven by the fact that there's an acknowledgement that a lot of medical schools don't teach it well or some don't teach it at all. So they want to know that people at least have a fundamental understanding before they start. So that's one thing. You can do it even in medical school and it's, it's there's a discount to students so it's cheaper <laughs> to do it as a student than you just have to have a letter not from the medical school right. confirming that you are a student at, at that school. You can't just do it without that. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is if you have an interest, go and spend time in your pathology lab in whatever hospital you're training in. Uh, the same as an intern and a resident. Um, except when you're in smaller hospitals that don't have a lab and, and some of the really small ones don't, most of the other ones will. And if you're interested, go and see the pathologist. You know, if you've been in surgery and you've been involved in the resection of a colon cancer or breast cancer, whatever, go into the pathology lab. You know, say you're interested, you can watch that specimen being cut up, you can talk to the pathologist and, and even ask if you can sit in on the reporting or have a look or have, you know, you can express interest in many ways and at least that'll give you an idea of what it's about and you can see if you're really interested in then applying to get onto the training scheme. Um, you really have to have done internship and residency, so there is a requirement for two clinical years before you can apply, I think that's pretty standard. Um, then it's just a matter of an application and certainly in New South Wales the AP training scheme is centrally administered so it's one application through the college okay. so it's easy yeah, so it sounds like the advice there is if you have an interest in it go out get some practical experience try it firsthand absolutely well go and talk to your pathologists and, and see what it's like and see if you're interested um, that, that costs you nothing other than a bit of your time and I'd say in most departments you'll be welcome I mean some people might sort of come busy today come back another day and you have to accept that there are days when people are really busy but I'd say there's always going to be someone there who will, will take you and, and will happily sort of show you around and, and let you have a look at some reporting or some cut-up or whatever. Um, it's good experience if, if you've even got the slightest bit of interest because it's not something you really will come across in medical school otherwise. You, know, you spend time in wards, you spend time in theatres, you spend time in A&E, whatever. But if you don't make the effort, you'll never spend time in, in that right. AP department or pathology department because it's just not included. Um, there are a few medical schools that... that do ask their students to go and do that a little bit, but it's a minority of time, but at least it's something. On many medical schools, there's no expectation or requirement at all. So those students will have no clue if they haven't actually tried to do it themselves. And um, I think a lot of departments will offer that option for students to, to come in, um, but it's very variable from place to place. So, you know, so the sometimes, sometimes yeah. a student has to make the effort themselves, yeah. The lesson there is to be proactive. Yeah, if you're interested, absolutely. go seek it out. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. And as, as we've seen, pathologists are nice, happy, friendly people. So there's no harm in um, doing an elective, a placement, or just chatting to them. So thank you so much, Dr. Nikki, for yeah, your time and your wisdom. And we'll see all our listeners on the next episode.